Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti. Lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain. Sleepless nights, shallow breathing. Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a sane split. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. For many years, I had a blog on Blogspot. Remember that platform? It answered some very basic questions about family law and the most commonly asked questions were, you guessed it, about child support. Who pays it? To whom? For whom? What if a child takes off a semester? What if she is in a co-op program? How can I, the payor, make sure that the child support I pay is actually spent on the child? Again, very common questions asked each and every day across Ontario. There are many urban tales out there about child support. I'm not sure where they come from, but I expect these are snippets of information pieced together from other cases involving child support, from social media, anecdotal information. Someone may be mistaken about the meaning of one concept and that misconception is then added to another concept and over time we have an image put together using pieces that don't really fit together. Let me give you an example. Many, many people think that in Ontario child support ends automatically at 18. And I have even heard people suggest that it ends at 16. Note my use of the word automatically. In both of those instances, the answer may be no. It may end in a specific case and given specific facts. But one should not assume that an 18-year-old is always on their own, so to speak and the financial support umbilical cord is always cut off at that age. Because we often look at 18-year-olds as adults, many people equate that with the end of financial support from his or her parents. These types of misunderstandings motivated me to have a blog about this issue in the first place, and then I thought to myself, Many Ontarians are still confused about child support, so it might make sense to discuss the topic on this podcast. And here we are. 
But first and foremost, some important qualifiers once I make each time I speak about the law. What I'm providing here is information, not legal advice. The internet and the podcast sphere are full of information about child support. Treat this episode as no more than another source of such information. I know nothing about your case. We are not lawyer and client, so I'm simply unable to advise you as a lawyer on how the law may apply to you. I also caution you against taking steps in your case based simply on what you heard on a podcast or read on the internet. No two cases are alike, I promise you. And I say this having practiced in the area of family law for 26 years. A single fact can significantly alter the application of the law to your case. Yes, there are general concepts and patterns that we can discern from case to case. But in order to truly understand the issue of child support in your case, you need to receive individual legal advice from an actual lawyer. Please consider having a consultation at least. It's important. So here are some basic concepts to help you build a foundation. The mechanics of determining who is entitled to child support, who is obligated to pay it and in what amount, are the same throughout Canada. In other words, these are the same in Ontario and in New Brunswick, in BC and in Nova Scotia. We do not treat differently children who live in one province versus another, except in the area of the amount of child support, and I talk about that a little later in this episode. Similarly, we do not distinguish between children who have married parents, common law parents, or who are adopted. All are treated the same way when it comes to child support. A blood relationship between an adult and a child is not necessary to create a child support obligation. And again, I will say more about this a little later. We have both federal, meaning Canada-wide, and provincial legislation, in other words, written law, to deal with child support. Which statute, provincial or federal, applies to your case is something you need to discuss with a lawyer. Child support is a concept that applies in situations where the parents of a child no longer reside together, they're separated, whether they're common law or married, but it is also relevant and applicable in cases where two people never actually live together, they did not cohabit, if they have a child together. Child support may be payable by one to the other based simply on the fact of their parenthood. I'm going to introduce a fictional family as a hypothetical to illustrate some of the concepts. And again, it's very basic. Lee and Padma separate. They have two children, aged five and eight. Lee is a janitor, a T4 employee, 
earning $30,000 a year. Padma is an artist and she works as a weaver at a creative cooperative. She earns $25,000 a year. She is also a T4 employee. The children will live primarily with Padma. The law presumes that both parents will support the children financially based on their incomes. Padma at $25,000 in her household with the children and Lee at $30,000. So we need to figure out what amount of child support and in what form Lee will pay to Padma since the kids will be living with her primarily. Please take note of this point. The children's residential arrangements. In other words, how much time they spend with each parent. This does impact child support, who pays it, how much, and so on. This is something you should look into further if your children spend more than 40% of the time in your household. In our hypothetical, they are in Padma's care most of the time. So we can follow the very basic mechanism for calculating Lee's child support obligation. Two concepts are relevant here. Number one, table child support. And number two, special or extraordinary expenses, also called Section 7 expenses because it's Section 7 of the relevant legislation that deals with them and describes them. The table amount is the monthly repeating amount of child support that a parent with primary residence of a child will receive from the other parent based on that other parent's income. The phrase table amount comes from a series of tables that are attached, are part of both federal and provincial legislation dealing with child support. There is a separate table for each province. The table amounts differ from province to province because among other factors, the cost of living and of raising children differs from province to province. So the first thing we would need to do in Lee and Padma's case is find the relevant table. So we would be looking for a table for the province of Ontario and that addressing support payable for two children. So where do we find these tables? Again, they are part of the Divorce Act federally and part of the Family Law Act provincially in Ontario. If you Google federal child support guidelines and Ontario child support guidelines, you will find further references to the tables. Again, the table under the Divorce Act for Ontario is the same as the Ontario table. So again, we need to find the table for two children in Ontario. And then trace down on the left-hand side to find Lee's income, $30,000. The tables tell us that he would be paying Padma $459 per month in table child support. 
Let's move to the other form of child support, Section 7 expenses. And to clarify, if the children do have such expenses, Lee would be paying both the table amount and also contributing to these Section 7 expenses. So it's one and the other, not one or the other. We do not have a definitive list of all Section 7 expenses. So if, for example, I get a call from a client asking whether car insurance for a university student is a Section 7 expense, I'm not able to go to a list and say, yes, it's on the list, or no, it's not. Section 7 does give us some categories of such expenses, and also a test the court will use to determine whether a proposed expense is a Section 7 expense or not. If you're dealing with a special or extraordinary expense, you should look at Section 7. It will give you some guidance, but you may also be left with some questions. For example, is summer camp a Section 7 expense? It is not listed in Section 7, but case law, decisions made by judges interpreting Section 7, tell us that summer camp is indeed a special or extraordinary expense. So when it comes to this form of child support, it's not one-stop shopping, so to speak, to determine whether an expense is a Section 7 expense. There is no list. You need to go further than simply look at the language of Section 7 in the relevant legislation. So let's work with summer camp for our hypothetical. The eight-year-old will be in daytime summer camp. How do we approach this? Well, the first thing to realize is that unlike for table child support, where only Lee's income was relevant to the calculation, both incomes are relevant here. Why? Because Section 7 expenses are shared by the parents proportionately to their incomes. So we need to figure out the cost of the day camp and then the proportions at which Lee and Padma share the expense. There are some options here for how the actual payments might be made. For example, each parent can pay their share directly to the camp or one can make the entire payment and then be reimbursed by the other as to their share. There is another concept we need to tackle here, specifically when it comes to Section 7 expenses, and that is any tax deductions available. Let's take daycare, for example. It is a Section 7 expense listed specifically in the section. If the kids are in before and after school care to enable Padma to keep her job, then she and Lee will be sharing that expense proportionally to their incomes. But we need to remember that a sizable tax deduction would be available to Padma in connection with the daycare expense. The law says that Lee contributes only to the cost of the daycare after Padma takes the deduction. And we figure that out up front. 
Most family law lawyers and mediators have software that helps us make these calculations. It has tax rates, credits, and deductions built into it so we can figure out the extent of the expense net of Padma's tax deduction and then figure out lease proportion on that basis. So when you are calculating Section 7 expenses, do not forget any tax credits available. These need to be netted out before the proportionate shares are determined. Here is another basic issue we need to consider, and that is how long Lee will pay child support. Since the kids are only five and eight, it's impossible to answer that question definitively at this stage. That would amount to crystal ball gazing. But to formulate some ideas, it is helpful to know how the law approaches the duration of child support. In other words, how long it's paid. There are sections in the legislation dealing specifically with children both below the age of majority and over. But the overall concept is the following. Support is payable for children over the age of 18 if a child is unable, for some legitimate reason, to withdraw, quote, from the charge of his or her parents, close quote. And I quote the language of the Family Law Act. Essentially, this means the person over 18 is unable to become financially self-sufficient. He or she continues to need financial assistance. Two common reasons for such a state of affairs are post-secondary education or illness. And here things may get a little tricky, but let me deal with the basic concept first. If a 20-year-old is at university or college, child support will continue to be payable. In what form and for how long depends on the specific facts of the case. Where do they live during the school year? Where do they live in the summer? Did they receive grants or bursaries? Do they live at home with one parent or are they in residence on campus? How long is the program of study? Are they taking a full course load? Are there any medical issues that might prevent them from studying full-time? This is what I mean that things can get a little complicated here. The general approach is one degree with full-time attendance. But you should not approach this as being carved in stone because every case is different. The parents' levels of income may very well impact on the questions related to this issue. If the parents are high income earners, the court will be more open-minded to the request by one parent that the other contribute to the cost of a second degree, for example. So if your kid is in second year at McMaster, do you contribute to tuition plus all the other costs related to university attendance and pay the table amount? Again, that depends. On what? On the specific facts of your case. For example, is he or she living at home with mom 
and taking the GO train to MAC for classes. This would mean mom is still incurring the usual costs in her household. Is he or she living in a rented house in Hamilton with three other students and coming home only in the summer months? That would be another calculation, perhaps involving a table amount only in the summer. Let's touch on illness. A young person over 18 who is on the spectrum and who for that reason is taking six years to complete a four-year degree. That young person is very likely to be entitled to receive child support for that duration and perhaps even longer. Did you notice I said this young person is entitled to receive child support? Did I not mean the parent is entitled to receive it? No, I meant what I said, and that is because child support is the right of the child and not the right of the parent receiving it. This is an important fact to consider. It impacts the parent's ability to bargain with child support as a negotiating chip. I can't spend too much time on this concept here, but I'm going to give you a practical example. A parent should not be able to trade child support for property, for example. That would be like negotiating with something one does not own. Give me $500,000 for my neighbor's house. Let's talk about who pays child support. Again, the basics. I mentioned at the beginning that a blood relationship is not necessary to establish an obligation to pay child support. This is relevant when the parents have never lived together, but it's less important when adults have a marriage or a common law relationship and also have relationships with children in which they act like parents. The simplest way of putting this is as follows. If you act like a parent to a child, you may very well have a child support obligation. The longer you do so, the stronger the likelihood you will pay child support. Using our hypothetical, let's add more facts. Lee is in fact not the biological parent of either child. He and Padma moved in together when the younger child was six months old. So they have lived together for four and a half years. Lee has always treated the children as his own, assumed the role of a father. A casual outside observer would think Lee is the father of these children. He is in loco parentis. It's a legal phrase we use meaning in the place of a parent. He will have a child support obligation on that basis. Will the biological parent have it as well? Maybe. That depends on other facts that are unknown to us. So these are some basics on child support. There are lots and lots of other issues to consider in this area of the law, and family law lawyers tackle them in Ontario each and every day. 
What if the payor of support is self-employed? How do we find their income on the Ontario table? What is their income? What if initially the child support was payable for three children and now only two remain dependent? One has graduated and is working. What happens to the amount? What about changes in income? What happens if one parent gets a raise? How is this factored into the calculation of the table amount in the case of the payor parent or the calculation of the proportions of the Section 7 expenses if either parent gets a raise? Remember, for special or extraordinary expenses, both income levels are relevant. Many Ontarians approach child support as a black and white issue. Sometimes I'm asked, my child is 18, do I still have to pay child support? Why is the FRO still collecting the payments? The answer is not simple. It may in fact be quite complicated because 18 is not a magic number that terminates the obligation forever. It's not that simple. Having a handle on the basics of child support is important and can be very helpful, including to alert you to the fact that there are issues in this area that you might not have considered and that need further investigation, perhaps a consultation with a lawyer. Because the idea of navigating your way to a sane split includes understanding child support. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.